The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount, seems like a long time getting through Matthew chapter 5. If you realize that I had an introductory message on it the Sunday before New Year's, uh, we are now at the last portion of Matthew chapter 5, and we'll move on, and it'll actually be possible to move a little faster in chapters 6 and 7 because there are larger blocks topically of text to treat. But listen carefully. This is Jesus speaking again, teaching the true, deep heart and mind meaning of the law of God, not the mere superficial obedience to it that he saw going on around him. And the last verse, we could easily preach on that alone, will wrap up what he's been saying here in the most recent portion of the chapter, and really the whole chapter is almost contained in that last verse. I'll try to show you why that is true. Listen to God's word, Matthew 5, starting at 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have for that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than any others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Only you can put a name to this person. He or she might be your neighbor, might be a manager or co-worker at your place of employment, might be a relative, one of those that you kind of dread seeing every holiday. You are fortunate if you do not have to label anyone in your experience as an enemy. But nearly everybody deals with someone who is extremely hard to talk to and just difficult to please and relate to. If you would somehow be able to correct in your life all 36 things that they've said are wrong with you, they'd come up with 13 or 14 more that they just haven't told you about yet. Who is the downright hardest person to love? Does a name come to mind? Chances are it does for almost everyone. Last week we looked at Matthew 5, 38 to 42, where Jesus exhorted disciples to turn away from personal retaliation when they were mistreated or insulted or ignored or harmed in some way. 
Jesus said, revenge is beneath us. It certainly was beneath him in all his dealings with people. And he urged us to commit our cause to to God as our final judge. A Christian should not be resisting every evildoer within our personal circumstances, although I did point out we could easily go down a side road and say there is biblical justification to resist the evildoer when it's for a national purpose or defense of our country or defense of the weak and helpless being abused before our eyes or in our presence. Well, our lengthy consideration of Matthew 5 concludes with what sounds once more like a most revolutionary and hard principle as Jesus calls on us to actively love people that we basically don't even like. First of all, look at verse 43 here and consider the question, did the Bible ever sanction hating an enemy? Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. A little piece of common wisdom that floated about in his day, promulgated most likely by good religious teachers who thought they were teaching people the right thing. Love other Jews, but don't love Gentiles. They're your enemy. But the fact is, the Bible never, in any exact words, instructs anyone to hate an enemy. What did the Old Testament teach? Leviticus 19:17 would be one good spot to land and hear teaching that was taught in other places as well in the Old Testament. There we read, Do not hate your neighbor in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. There's the Old Testament teaching the heart-deep interpretation of the law, just as Jesus was doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. But you could easily tell me that the issue becomes complicated because you say, well, wait a minute. What about those Psalms I read? Every once in a while, maybe you turn to the Psalms for some soothing scriptural words and you happen to flip a page and you come to David speaking in Psalm 58 where he's speaking about some people who opposed him and he says in a prayer, Lord, break their teeth in their mouths. O God, make them vanish like water that drains away like a stillborn child. May they never see the sun. Wow. That's definitely not loving your neighbor or praying for those who despitefully use you. Psalm 109, maybe you chanced on this one where David was speaking about someone who told lies against him, and he said, May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his wife become a widow and his creditors seize all that he owns. Wow. David's certainly not being very nice to those people he was talking about. Well, there is an apparent difficulty here, but it resolves itself if we recall that in those occasions, as far as I can see consistently, David or other psalmists show righteous wrath, holy anger towards those who oppose the things of God. They were either worshiping idols, they were maligning the name of God, attacking the people of God as a whole, and in some way, the anger that is shown in what we call the imprecatory psalms, psalms that show that kind of anger, is anger against evil itself on behalf of God. 
It is holding up evil and describing what it is. It's not simply a man venting his own personal peeves. The call of Christ in our text, Matthew 5, is indeed for us to hate evil, to hate those who insult God, hate them in the sense of what they represent. But in acting towards them as individuals, we're charged again and again, Old Testament and New, to love the individual evildoer. And if this is a duty to perform in our own strength, we're going to say, how am I supposed to do that? Well, secondly, we can anticipate or participating in a love of those we don't necessarily like if we find out in this passage that it is seen and empowered by what God did for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. The key to showing love towards people you don't like is found at the cross. What Jesus asked us to do here would be a preposterous demand if it merely depended on our ethical behavior as weak human beings. We, can't, we would say, I can't do this. That person assaults me, he shames me, he belittles me, he makes me feel worthless. How am I supposed to love him? How am I supposed to feel kindly or compassionately? Well, right there you've asked the wrong question. It's not about how you feel. It's about participating in and passing on the same self-sacrificing love that God showed to you at the cross of His Son. The foundation is explained in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who blocks and deflects the wrath of God for our sins. God did that for you. Do you know that? If you are a person who knows that, you are on the way to being able to participate in showing this love. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates, he didn't preach a sermon about it, he demonstrated his own love this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated this. Right in that same chapter, verse 6, Romans 5.6, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the anti-God people. And that was you. It wasn't somebody else. It was you. Do you know that? You see, if you can understand that you were among the ungodly who did not merit the love of God at the cross in any way, shape, or form, it isn't just other bad people that Christ died for. He died for you as one of the ungodly, undeserving people whom really, if God did what was logical and what was merited by us, He would hate us. And He would have to destroy us. Do you understand that? Do you understand that God demonstrated His love for you in Christ when you were kicking and screaming against that love. You see, if you know that, then you'll start to get inside of this passage. Because we mainly just love people who are like us or especially who can do something for us. Or people who are attractive that we want to be around because of the attraction we have to their personality or their character or their interests and deeds. 
I'm sure you've heard before that the New Testament has several words for love. Here we could think perhaps it was being spoken about as the eros love of sexual passion. But no, that's not the word in the text here. Or maybe it's about every Philadelphia baseball fans, the Phillies. You know, the Phillies come from Philea, friendship, love, the friendly city Philadelphia's supposed to be. I'm not sure whether they earn that title all the time or not, but that's another subject. But that's not the word for love here either. The word is agape. It's a whole new love invented with a word especially for loving those who are undeserving and bound and set against, rebelling against everything God's love is about. I was talking to one of our newer folks to the church who were telling me they had moved to a new home and lived in Ephrata. And there's a development where, um, I don't know what all the street names are, but it must have had a Christian developer or contractor involved because these, these folks live on Agape Drive. Isn't that great? What a great address for a Christian to live on Agape Drive. But they said, obviously, there are many neighbors who are not Christians and don't know the New Testament, and so they can't quite figure this word out. Where did it come from? And they say, I live on Agape. Nobody knows what Agape is. It's Agape, of course. A love that isn't merited, that isn't warranted in the things that the person can bestow on you or, or because they're going to help you or something like that. This is the kind of love from the God who once said in Scripture of Israel, I love them because I love them. You know, as you and I would read the Old Testament, he would, we would want to say, God, why in the world do you love the children of Israel? What a miserable bunch they are in the Old Testament. Constantly you do things for them. They turn around and rebel and turn to idols and do everything wrong and then complain as if you, God, had done something wrong. Well, God once said, I love them because I love them. It's my business. I love them in spite of what they're like, in spite of what they could do for me. And so we find here in verse 44, Jesus challenging us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it's calling on us to demonstrate that same love that God showed us. And we would say, well, how am I supposed to do that? I'm not God. Well, we're called to do it. Who can do this? Those who are sons and daughters of their heavenly Father. And that's said right here in the text. For by doing this, you will show that you are sons and daughters of your heavenly Father. You will show that the love of God in Christ has actually penetrated you, that you understand you were loved at the cross when you hated God. When you rejected God, that's when he loved you. While you were still in your sins, he loved you. So thirdly, there is a practical action here I want you to see. You don't have too much time for this this morning. For It is an important text. There's a practical thing here you can do to act upon this amazing love of God in Christ toward other people. And it is not based on how you feel about them. God's love is not feeling-based toward us. Christ in you is the one who has to love this unlovely person. The Holy Spirit that has made you a new creation in Christ Jesus is going to have to be the one motivating you 
to get up and do something practical about loving that unlovely person. A C.S. Lewis quote spells it out, I think, pretty well from Mere Christianity. Lewis said, Do not waste your time wondering whether you will feel love for that crotchety work associate or your most critical opponent. You never will, he said. Start today instead acting as though you did feel it. And instead of being a hypocrite in this, you will discover a great secret. Soon your tentative Christ-like obedience creates beginnings of real affection to be born in you. When you act as if you loved, you begin to love, Lewis was saying. And what's the practical step to take? Love your enemies and P-R-A-Y for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. That's a concrete action. It doesn't require you to write a speech. It doesn't require you to even walk across the road and talk to the person. Just wherever you are, pray for God to show his mercy to this person. He already has, by the way. Jesus mentioned the fact that the the person already has some of God's mercy because the rain and the sun shine on them in a general way, just as they do on believers. But pray that his special mercy, his saving mercy, would penetrate their hard head and would begin to get through to them in some way. Ask the Father to melt away the spite and the malice and the bitterness that this person seems to spew forth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, leader against the Nazis in his own country in World War II, said, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand at his side, and we plead for him to God. Now, the simplicity of this is it's just about impossible to continue praying for someone who is opposed to you without beginning to sympathize with that person, to think your way through what they're facing in their life and who they are and what their obstacles may be, and find out, surprise of surprises, that you have a growing compassion for them. God spiritually transforms me as I pray for somebody else. My attitude starts softening. I think of one of the great instances of someone being prayed for, and we don't know the outcome. The simple scene of Jesus praying for the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross. It's told there that here they were. They had nailed him up. They had brutalized him. They had whipped him. They had done every disgraceful thing just about that anybody could do to another human being. And Jesus looked at these men as he'd been raised up on his cross and said, Father, forgive them. They're acting in ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what effect that might have had on them? We don't know. If somebody ever did a movie, and I suspect somebody probably did do a movie where one of those Roman soldiers had a great conversion and, you know, developed a fictional story out of that where they became a disciple. Maybe they did. But there's Jesus praying for his enemy. We look at that and we say, how can you do that, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, how can you not do that? You who have been the recipient of me praying for you and my Father showing love as he took me to the cross and saw my blood shed on your behalf. 
Well, we come to this final word, verse 48, that it really is worth a whole sermon by itself because it, it startles us. I think even if you've been closely following things in Matthew 5, you come to verse 48, and maybe you just scratch your head. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is Jesus saying? You must be God as God is God? Perfect. Does he really think I can become perfect? Well, you see, the fact of the matter is, if you have seen yourself as an unworthy object of the love of God in Christ on his cross, you already stand in the category of perfection in heaven's account book. You are positionally perfect in the justice of God and the justice of salvation in Christ, in the grace of salvation in Christ. You are guaranteed to stand before that final counsel of the throne of God and have God say, John Smith, perfected in Christ. That's already true for those who call Jesus Lord. Now, is it true completely in terms of the development of our character and our discipleship? No, it's still on the way. But even there, God in Christ and the Holy Spirit are working in us and working out this new creation in us making us more and more like our God and Savior. And so there's a tremendous calling here. We are called to a love that originates in the perfection of what God is, and we are enabled to do it because that love has already been renovating us, even as we're here on earth, not yet perfected in our flesh. But we are perfected in the hall of fame in heaven where we belong to the list of the people of God. And we have a new power in us to do this, what Christ commands us to do. Again and again and again in my Christian life has come words of a phrase that is attributed to Augustine from the 500s approximately A.D., centuries after Christ. One of the most profound... If, if Augustine didn't write any of his marvelous works and he's written all kinds of things... And he only was responsible for this prayer. He would be a great man. The little prayer of Augustine is that which says, Lord, command of me anything you will, but enable everything that you command. Do you see how that fits? Matthew 5, 48. Lord, command of me to love a difficult person who I do not like, I don't even want to be around, but since you commanded it, give me the ability to do it. Enable what you command. I believe that stands beside what we're being told here. You can begin at least to pray for that difficult person. You can even persist in praying and see what three months of doing that works out in you, let alone in the person you're praying for. Maybe something truly amazing. When we start with prayer for someone who looks like an enemy that we don't even like, God's perfect Calvary love goes to work. He stakes his claim in those imperfect people we're praying for, and he changes them, and he changes me. Try it. I guarantee God will teach you some wonderful lessons by his grace and for his glory. Father, 
We are imperfect lovers even of those that we care about and, and do like. Even beloved family members and spouses we don't treat well. We sometimes treat them almost like enemies, let alone those we don't like who abuse us. Father, teach us to discover prayer at the root of our relationships, to begin with someone where there's conflict and difficulty by praying for that one, and teach us more and more the lessons of your own perfect love that came for us and captured us while we were still ungodly people, still in our sins. We praise you for being the author of love. Amen.